Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft, coming out in May 2010. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, we have a great show. I read an article recently in the Daily Journal, which is the legal newspaper for the state of California, and the article was by this wonderful professor, Charles S. Duskow. And the article was called The Right to Control Versus Personal Privacy. So, of course, that caught my eye immediately. And it was fascinating. And we gave him a call. And he's on with us today. So let me tell you a little bit about this wonderful professor. Uh, Charles Dusko is Dean Emeritus and Professor of Law at the University of Laverne College of Law in Ontario. He's a graduate of the University of Wisconsin in Madison, where I went to, and we just found out we're fellow Badgers. And he also went to Harvard Law School. And actually, I went to Harvard for my post-law school training for mediation and negotiation. Charles was in private practice in Upland for many years after serving as counsel for Dart Industries, Inc. in Los Angeles and for Lewis Holmes in Upland. He served as Dean of the College of Law from 1980 to 1985, and presently he teaches constitutional law and professional responsibility at Laverne. He is a past president of the San Bernardino County and Western San Bernardino, Bernardino, let me say that again, and Western San Bernardino County Bar Associations and the Inland Empire Chapter of the Federal Bar Association. He currently serves on the PBA Inland Empire Chapter Board. Professor Dosko has written several law review articles, and he's a frequent contributor to the pages of the Los Angeles Daily Journal, and that's where I saw his editorial. He's published articles in the American Bar Association's Journal, The Professional Lawyer, and The Federal Lawyer. In addition, he's reviewed several books on constitutional law and history in The Federal Lawyer. He's appeared as a commentator on constitutional and other legal issues on KPCC Public Radio 89.3, which I love, and the Time Warner Cable Local Edition. He's done a tremendous uh, work in public uh, for on consulting on constitutional law. 
And in 2007, he served as an American Bar Association consultant for the Rule of Law Initiative in the Kingdom of Jordan. And he offered a course in common law torts at the University of Münster in Germany. So we are just thrilled. You can learn more about him at www.ulv.edu and then click on the law school. So we're so thrilled, Charles, that you joined us today. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Well, let's talk about the Quan case and tell us what exactly happened in that case and about the privacy of electronic texting. Okay. In, in the Quan case, you had a police sergeant on the city of Ontario police force who was issued a, a machine, a texting machine to use in his duties. The practice was that he could use it up to a certain number of characters. If he went over that number of characters, he was charged, and he was charged and he paid. Um, There was no real limit on his using it for personal use, even though there was a formal policy that that said he shouldn't and that said the city had the right to look at the texts that he had had sent. At, At one point, the police department decided he is really running up a lot of minutes on his machine, and they wanted to check and see, was he shirking his duties? So they called up those messages, and they actually read them. And basically, he said that invaded his privacy. And he brought suit saying that they had violated his rights under Section 1983, his constitutional rights, and that it was a violation of the Fourth Amendment. Now, the Fourth Amendment we deal with usually in a criminal context, where the question is whether certain in, certain uh, information or materials that the police department has obtained can be used to prosecute someone, or did that did there were they obtained by an unreasonable invasion of privacy? And that was the question in this case. Did the did the police department obtain this information by an unreasonable expectation of privacy, by an invasion of that right. Now, the analysis of that, of course, is in the first place, you've got to have an expectation of privacy. Then secondly, its invasion has to be unreasonable. And that was the question that the court struggled with in trying to decide this particular set of facts. They decided that he did have an expectation of privacy. Even though there was an official policy to the contrary, they said the policy of the, the of informality in the district overrode that and allowed him to have an expectation of privacy in these messages. They then looked at the search that had been made, and they said, well, was it reasonable? Well, it was reasonable at its inception, but in its scope, it exceeded that standard because they didn't have to read the messages to find out what they wanted to find out, which was, was he shirking his duties and spending his too much time doing this? Now, there's some kind of more colorful facts involved. Apparently, some of the messages he sent were to his wife and some others to his girlfriend. <laughs> right. Um, and that they really aren't relevant to the particular issue involved. Now, the case has been cited as really establishing a, a privacy right on the part of the individual in those text messages. I think by the time all the dust settles, it's going to be concluded that this is a very particular set of facts. Well, didn't he? Didn't his superior say, you know, you can use it for personal as long as you don't go over 
basically that was their concern was that he wasn't using too that's right they had no uh, no interest in what he did as long as he stayed within the limit but then they changed their mind about that and that's what resulted in right and wasn't that kind of the conflict because the policy said not to use it for personal but then his superior said he could use it for personal and other people said it too and so there was that conflict of do i have a reasonable expectation of privacy in this or don't i that's right, and that's one of the things the court had to decide was which took precedence, the written policy, which was formal, or the practice of the department, which allowed him to believe that it would be okay and he could use his personal messages on here. And the court resolved that basically in favor of the privacy interest. Right, right. So, you know, I mean, for those of you who are driving by who are business owners and or you work in a corporation and you're a supervisor, if you have policies that are written and you don't follow those policies and everybody knows you don't follow those policies, you have that incongruence again. So, you know, this is a good thing for you to remember. If you have a written policy about privacy issues, whether it's cell phone usage or text message usage, and that's going to be an issue for you to remember that you, if you have a policy, you need to follow that policy. So what issues weren't really ad- addressed by the court? Well, there a number of issues weren't raised. One of them is, did the people on the other end of his messages have any right to privacy on their part? Oh, yeah. I think the answer to that one's pretty simple, is they don't. Any privacy rights they have were his. They derive from him as the sender of the message. And of course, it was on his system, not on their system. Right. Uh, the other question that they resolved was involved the outside um, message uh, wireless communication provider because they were also defendants in the case because they disclosed that information to the police department. And since they were simply a communications service, their rule is they could only deliver that information to the sender or at his order. Right. And the court had to decide whether they were an electronic service provider or a remote uh, computing service. If they're a remote commuting service, they're a storage function and they're off off the premises, but they are the agent of the police department. And they could tell the police department if they were that. But the court had to decide which they were, and the court decided on the side of communication. They said they were basically a communication server and as such were subject to these privacy restrictions. Ah, interesting. Huh. So well, it's interesting in that the statute that's passed by Congress uh, protected the communication, but not the storage. Yes. Hmm. And that, that raises some interesting questions because yeah. law firms now routinely send their kind of bulk information to outside uh, service, uh, basically these uh, remote computing services which store it. Right. And questions have been raised whether that violates their obligations of keeping their clients' information confidential. Um, the fact is that it doesn't if they have proper safeguards, and of course that really follows anyway. Right, right. Are you talking about like cloud computing where they're exactly. leaving everything up there in the clouds? Exactly. Yeah, that's an unsettled area too. So what effect will, will this case really have? That, that's hard to say. Um, you know, the, the, the opinion as written um, had the support of the, the justices who heard it. It then went up, uh, was asked to re- be reheard by the entire Court of Appeals or by the or panel. 
And that lost, I think, by one vote. And the dissenting justices wrote a lengthy opinion, uh, sort of blasting this one, as saying you're hampering the activities of the government employer. You're saying it makes it much more difficult for him to compel, to control his employees, to have this information which he's entitled to, and so on. And, of course, that raises the question that you just raised a minute ago about a private employer or any employer who has employees who are using communications methods. Do they have any expectation of privacy? Does, in general, an employee have an expectation of privacy in their computer at work? And normally we say no, and usually an employee has signed something saying that. Now, it would have made a difference if the cell phone belonged to him, even though they were paying maybe for his service? Would it have made a difference? I, I, the short answer is probably yes, but I don't think any of those things are absolutely set in concrete. Right. One thing the employee can sign an agreement saying they're all subject to the employer Another thing, a lot of it's on company time, even though it may be his. And one of the things the courts have commented on in other contexts is the way we mix personal and business today in a way we didn't used to. Um, that we're very used to having our own personal communications at work and, and treating them as private, where that wasn't so really as recently as 10 years ago. Exactly. You know, I carry my BlackBerry wherever I go. And, you know, even when I'm home, I'm sometimes doing work on my BlackBerry, right? Responding to people that it, and clients and answering them. So I'm taking my business home with me. And then I sometimes have to answer the phone if my kids call or something happens. I have to do that at work. Obviously, I have my own business, so that's not a problem. But if someone worked for me, that would be an issue as well. Usually, we say that if you are using company equipment, where a company cell phone or a company computer, that there is less of an expectation of privacy, right? I mean, most of the time, if there is no expectation of privacy, if you're using company stuff, right? That's exactly right. And most employers, I think, would, have, would believe they have the right to go on the computer at any time. And I think a lot of employees act as if that's, that's in fact so. One of the questions that's not really resolved is, does it make any difference that this was a government employer? In other right. words, it, it's a, it becomes a constitutional issue when it's a government employer. But does that affect the interpretation? In other words, would you treat privacy and the expectation of privacy any differently if it were a private employer and end up as basically a contractual dispute rather than a constitutional dispute. Right. So in what ways does the Constitution treat electronic communications differently from other media? Uh, it really doesn't, by and large. And the court has been pretty firm on, on the Internet um, and other kinds of wireless communication. The, the only the modern uh, methods of communication that run into problems with the Constitution are those that are regulated like the air, the airwaves, the radio and television. But the court has not, of course, cable is not regulated, and, and um, satellite is not, and the Internet is not. And the court has been extremely emphatic that freedom of, press, freedom of speech on the Internet is to be protected just like freedom of speech anywhere. So those the, the medium is not really the issue in most most issued terms, except for the way that it gets communicated and stored 
and made available to third parties who, who may interfere with it. Well, you know, this whole thing actually leads to what is privacy now in the information age? And let's kind of talk about as far as the Constitution. I know that there there is no you know, actual written right to privacy in the federal constitution as there is in the California constitution. So how do we find a right to privacy in our federal constitution? Well, as you pointed out, the uh, constitution does not use the word privacy. And of course, we really have to distinguish between the really the two aspects of it. The one of personal privacy, which comes out of Griswold and then 1965, um, where the court talked about the Bill of Rights and said there's a right of privacy or zones of privacy that come from the First, the Third, the Fourth, the Fifth, the Ninth, and the and the Fourteenth Amendments. That all of those, and they talked about penumbras and emanations from these, which created a right of privacy. And, of course, Roe v. Wade was the right of privacy. Now, that privacy is not what... No, that was bodily privacy. Well, that's right. It's not what you and I are talking about today. Right. And the court has since really moved away from that word to substitute personal liberty. And in Casey, they talked about personal liberty. And uh, in um, Lawrence versus Texas, the opinion talked about liberty. So tell us, tell us about those cases so we kind of understand for those people who are driving by or the students on the campus here because they're not familiar with those cases. And so kind of give them an idea of what, what, what were the privacy issues in those cases that was considered personal liberty. Well, one thing I do is caution my students against using the word privacy all the time because it is such a broad word and covers so many things. And then you need to talk about what aspect of it you're, you're, you're dealing with. You mentioned, I mentioned liberty, um, you mentioned personal, and of course, it's really personhood. It's the ability of people to do things free of government interference. Griswold involved uh, the use of prophylactics. Uh, Roe v. Wade, of course, was abortion, a woman's right to control her own body and that kind of uh, non-interference of the government in things that are none of the government's business. And that follows through through cases like Lawrence, which basically said, Consenting adults in private, the state has no business with that. And it is, say, they've gotten away from the use of the word privacy in those areas to talk about family relations and other things. But it's an entire area of law, which is in the books under the heading. If you look at the top of the page in the book, it says privacy. Yeah, and the right to be left alone, right? Well, that's kind of what I stress with the <laughs> students, is that if the government's going to interfere with you, it has to have a good reason. That's where the burden ought to be on interfering with what an individual does. And you can call it privacy. I like the word personhood, but there are a lot of other words that, that get involved in this. And the court seems to have come down on liberty. So when we when we look to the Constitution, you were talking about the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment. Can we go over those kind of like which which of those amendments really deal with issues that affect our privacy? Like, We'll start with the First Amendment. Well, the court talked about First Amendment, of course, is, is freedom of speech and freedom of religion, that you're left alone in those. But they, when, when they were listed in the Griswold case, they, were, they talked about emanations from these amendments, which created penumbras and zones of privacy, right? The, the Fourth Amendment, of course, is, is, is from unreasonable search and seizure. That's, of course, where we are. And that's, 
that's the other side of privacy. But, but the Fifth Amendment, self-incrimination, other criminal rights, the Ninth Amendment, which says, right, just because we didn't mention the right doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And then uh, Justice Harlan said, well, the 14th Amendment really encompasses all of them. We don't have to put a label on them. <laughs> and that's, that's not unusual constitutional law. There's, there's a right to travel, which is recognized universally. The word travel is not in the Constitution either. But the court gets it sometimes in the Interstate Commerce Clause, sometimes in the First Amendment, sometimes in the Equal Protection Clause. But it's recognized that there is such a right, regardless of where you find it in the Constitution. You know, there's only a handful of states that actually have the word privacy in their Constitution, of which California is one of them. And, and how is that really different from the federal Constitution, then, where we actually use that word privacy? Or it says we have a right to have privacy in our person and our place and well, all that stuff. I don't know that it changes necessarily anything substantially. It simply uh, gives you a label to put on it that that is direct in that area, that directly mentions privacy as something that's being interfered with. Now, the privacy we're talking about, of course, is interference by the government with the privacy. Right. And uh, that's the state constitution simply puts that in more formal form. Right. We are speaking with Professor Charles S. Dusko, who is Dean Emeritus and Professor of Law at the University of Laverne College of Law in Ontario, California. And you can learn more about him at UL, like love, V, dot edu and then click on the law school and, and see what that law school is all about. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. And I'm your host of Privacy Piracy, Mari Frank. And we are speaking with Charles about the various aspects of privacy and what's going on now. You know, if we kind of go up to date and we hear about what happened with these Google executives why don't you tell my audience about the convictions of the three American Google executives? What was that all about, and, and what do you think is going to happen? That's a very interesting situation. A, a tape or video was put on Google, which showed a young man who was a Down syndrome patient um, being kind of brutally beaten up by a group of bullies. And it was actually only on for about two hours, but a group, a, an activity group, an active citizens group in Italy, protested its appearance on, on Google. And criminal proceedings were brought against three Google executives in court in Italy. And the court convicted them of having invaded the privacy of the victim of this, of this assault. Um, the three individuals were executives. Two of them were lawyers, which really seems extreme. And uh, they were sentenced to six months with a suspended sentence. Now, as a practical matter, I don't think any of them were in Italy, and I suspect none of them are going to go back to Italy either in the near future. But it raised the issue of what can be published about someone without fear of it being a complaint that it's a matter of invasion of their privacy. And it's resulted in a lot of comment about the difference between how Europeans regard issues like privacy and how Americans regard them. Because a prosecution like that could not have happened in this country because the uh, Communications Decency Act protects websites specifically. 
from being held responsible for the content they publish. And of course, um, Google does not, uh, this is Italy, it's the equivalent of YouTube actually in Italy, um, does not edit what goes on there. People post things. Right. Now, they took it down after two hours. And one of the results of its being published was that the individuals who'd, who'd done the bullying were uh, arrested and uh, convicted as juveniles of it. So in a sense, you can say, well, gee, this actually served a public service. But that's not how they look at it in Europe. In Europe, they, they treat it as an issue of people's face, of, of not being subjected to that kind of exposure, of um, having their public matters uh, publicized in this way. We tend to treat it as sort of a consumer matter and right to know, but that's not how, not how they looked at it. And there have been a couple of uh, extremely interesting editorials written about this. They, they say the, the Europeans are very much uh, influenced by the fact that they, they had the, the Nazis and the Stasi, and, and who basically had no respect for anything. And in reaction to that, they tend to protect people's privacy and ability to avoid having things like this, this uh, published. Now, the Internet, of course, doesn't lend itself to this kind of, of dual uh, jurisprudence, right? In other words, our jurisprudence says it's fine. Theirs says, hey, we're going to put you in jail if you do it. And their stress is human dignity, right? And ours is more consumer protection. And, um, and what happened to the person who actually uploaded this video? Did oh, anything happen? Or? I don't think anything. I don't, oh. I don't even know that I was involved in the case. The, the idea was to punish the people who had genuinely uh, publicized it, which was the website. And they picked on Google in that way. Um, now, the reason they got a suspended sentence is because they expediently took it down, like within two hours as soon as there was a, a complaint? Yeah, I think the idea was to send a message. I don't think anybody really wanted to put them in jail. Right. Um, you know, the uh, the Italians have done that before. Remember, it was CIA people who did a uh, kidnapped a suspect from Italy. They they were all tried and convicted in Italian court um, mm -hmm. in absentia. And, right. Uh, the Italians don't mind doing that. Um, but Google says no. We're not pulling out of Italy. We we recognize what happened here, but in fact, we we think. We cannot edit these in addition. We acted responsibly when we took it down. Right. And we were within our rights to put it up. And, and of course, our First Amendment, we treat the First Amendment and freedom of speech much more seriously than obviously they do because they are going to protect the dignity interest here at the expense of the free speech. Right, right. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, uh, I know we have laws that say that the internet service provider is got you know no liability whatsoever for things that are uploaded there and you know that that seems to be a problem sometimes don't you think i mean f for example i have had victims of identity theft that found out that people put up things on a website and it wasn't them and we've had a heck of a time taking it down because there was they they would tell us well you know what we have no liability for what's put up there so, so i guess the issue is what if there are complaints should there be some other kind of law that if there are complaints by someone who's being hurt by it that 
the internet service provider really needs to take these things down and maybe there should be some liability if they don't? Well, I think their immunity is not absolute, but they acted responsibly here. Right. Um, the real key is if you're going to have censorship, you have to have a censor. And nobody wants to have a censor. Right. We want to have free speech. And when you have free speech, you take the bad with the good. And we know this in journalism. We know this in politics. We know this kind of everywhere we go. Because the cure is worse than the disease when you have to have somebody uh, making initial determinations about what can be said and what can't be said. Um, I, I'm you know, personally pretty much on your side in terms of uh, no censorship and allowing things to happen. Um, but you can see, though, that the Internet, which doesn't recognize international boundaries in any way, is going to have many, many issues like this arise. Look at look at Google in China now. Right. That's turned into a, you know, a humongous issue of, of how the Chinese are going to react to this, which Google is now operating out of an, a server in another country. Um, now they're in Hong Kong. I just read recently that, right. that they're in Hong Kong, which is still China, you know. But they're they're not going to respect uh, the you know suppression of of items you know of things that are put up by people who are in Hong Kong, right? Right, and of course, how can a website be responsible for following the laws of two hundred countries? In other words, the the internet goes all over the world; it doesn't stop anywhere. So, so what do you think the effects are going to be of of these convictions? Oh, I don't. I don't know that there are really going to be any. Um, I think that I don't think you know, Google's about to start censoring in Italy, and uh, maybe people will be you know, take things down more quickly. But uh, hopefully, the person who you would you would want to uh, prosecute would be the one who put it on there. That's exactly. Not always, that's not always something you can easily determine. Right, right, because then you have to subpoena the information to get the IP address from the ISP. And again, if they have no liability, then they're going to fight you, you know? And and when should they even get it? Well, that's, that's that, a that whole other issue. That's a different question, which <laughs> yeah. actually I'm, I'm in the middle of writing about, of how someone obtains the true identity of someone who's posted something under a pseudonym. Mm-hmm. And the states are all over the place on that. Some of them require quite a showing, and some just do it automatically. But you always have to go through the server to right. get to them. And the server always says, no, 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 we, we're not responsible. You, you go after this guy. Yes. So they have to come in and defend and say, no, no, you shouldn't tell who we are. But it, that raises a very well, interesting set of problems in the libel area. Exactly. You know, I'm thinking of... Uh, I don't know if you know who Dan Solov is, but he's a, an attorney and a privacy attorney who is also a professor at George Washington University, and he wrote a book called The Future of Reputation on the Internet, and I've interviewed him on this show, and it's a great book. If you if you haven't read it, you may want to read it, but it, it, it'll go very well with what you're writing now because... The future, I mean, someone could literally put up something to totally defame you, Professor, or me. And and what do we have to go through? You know, it, it, it may be very, very tough for us to go through and, and get that information down. And how many times has it been replicated and shared and 
put onto so many other websites, and it may not even be true about us at all. Oh, of course, and that's always a problem with, uh, I mean, that that's something that the uh, freedom of speech has to deal with, things that are not true. Exactly, but it it's not like in the olden days, somebody says something and then, you know, gets repeated and it's gossip, or it's in a few papers. Now, something on the internet, it can be replicated myriad times. And even when you get something down off of one uh, internet service provider, it, it, it may be on somebody else's. It's a, I think it's, it's, there's that balance between freedom of speech and, you know, the freedom to be who you are and not be defamed all the time. It's, it's a problem. Well, that becomes a question of responsibility, ultimately. Yeah. But our, our defamation laws, you know, simply don't provide the kind of protection that uh, sometimes you think is needed. Yeah. So I'm just one. That's what I'm wondering is what kind of new defamation laws should we have for the Internet? I don't know if we have an answer to that. Is that what you're working on in your in your article? Well, I was really working on the issue of, of how you find out the identity of the speaker. Yeah. Right, right. But, uh, and then, then you go after them for defamation. Well, <laughs> first you have to file suit, right? And then you have to find out who they are. Exactly. You know, there was an interesting case that a woman, uh, a victim of identity theft, came to me from New York. She called me that um, she had all these men coming to her door and calling her and thinking that she was hot to trot, and obviously she wasn't, and she was terrified by this. And finally, one of the men told her, well, you put up this website, or uh, it was on some kind of dating website. It wasn't Match.com. So, well, you put all this information. You put your name, your address, your phone number, and all this information about how you had all these dreams that you wanted to be, you know, caressed, et cetera, et cetera, things that you never would have put up there. And um, she said, well, wh- where, where was this? So they gave her the URL, and she went to them, and they said, well, we can't do anything. And she said, well, I want to know the person who did this. I need to know who did this because it's not me. They took it down, but they didn't want to tell her who it was without a subpoena. We were able to find out, believe it or not, we had a police report. We finally got the New York City police to make a report and to help us. And we did find out, and it happened to have turned out to be an old roommate mm-hmm. from 10 years before. Yeah, well, there, there are there are cases in the books like that, and whether the uh, website can be required to give that up is is, is the question. Um, I, the one you're talking about is is so extreme, um, but of course in New York you can start a lawsuit pretty easily, right? <laughs> and, and well, we didn't we didn't even have to file a lawsuit, and we didn't even have to really have a subpoena. We actually did a little kind of interesting thing under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. If you're a victim of identity theft. And you have a police report and an affidavit that you've completed from the Federal Trade Commission. You can go to anyone who's issued an account to a fraudster and demand that they provide you all documents of the fraud, including applications. And so that's what we used. It was just kind of an analogy that I used because I wanted to do it without her even having to file a lawsuit. And that's how we got it. So that was just a roundabout way of doing it, but we did get it without a subpoena. I see. Very good. Yeah. It was, it was, you know, that only would work with a victim of identity theft. But you've got cyber identity theft all the time, mm-hmm. you know? 
So what kinds of privacy laws do we need? You know, we have a whole patchwork of stuff. Let's talk about the kinds of patchwork laws that we do have, like, you know, Gramm-Leach-Bliley for financial privacy or... Well, if you go on, you go on Google, uh-huh. you will find that there are literally dozens of privacy laws and federal privacy laws. And what's more, pretty much every statute that's enacted has its kind of subsection on privacy and what can be disclosed and what can't be disclosed. And you're just always looking at that balance besides what is needed in order to efficiently do something and what uh, can be kept uh, from the public. What do they have no right to? Um, I, I can't generalize more than say that the the, um, the Privacy Act of 1974 itself is, is strong enough. It's but it really, only applies to the government. Right, but it, it's a strong statement of policy which has been followed in many, many, many statutes which have been enacted by Congress. Right. They pretty well throw it in. Kind of every uh, law that's passed gives some right of keeping the information private. Um, I think we've got a very strong culture of privacy in this country. And, of course, we need it because the means of communications are so extreme and so so in, in, uh, invasive at this point. You know, um it, you were talking before about the European Union, and for information privacy, for example, the European Union has an opt-in scheme that you're not allowed to sell information about the citizens or the, the people who live in the European Union without prior permission, where here, as you know, we have the companies have the right to sell information about you unless you opt out. In, in many cases, and there are some cases that aren't that case, but especially with financial privacy, we, we really mostly have a right to opt out of having our, our sensitive data about our financial privacy shared with third-party non-affiliates. So we do have that right, but in the European Union, if we were living in Europe, we would not be able to, they would not be able to sell our information unless we gave prior consent. Okay. Well, some statutes are written that way, that it's affirmative action and some right. um, giving you the right to opt out. But we even have the right not to receive communications in uh, on telephone calls and things like that. Right. The do and not that, call That's another us. aspect of privacy of not having, not having allowed, not allowing communications to be made to you. Right. But we have to opt out. We have to go on the, the FTC website or, or, do, or do get on the do not call list. Again, we we have that right, but we have to have an we have to take an affirmative action, whereas in yeah. Europe, they don't have to take that affirmative action. And well, let, let's skip now to um, FERPA, F-E-R-P-A. Uh, what is what is that? FERPA is the Federal Education Records Privacy Act. Okay. I'm sorry, Educational Rights and Privacy Act of 1974, which basically guarantees students' privacy in, in their academic records and limits the amount that they can be used. And in my mind, it, it oversteps in a lot of ways. It, it applies to, for one thing, it applies to higher education, in an area where I'm not sure it necessarily belongs. But it gives students the right to keep things um, secret from anyone. And things like grades, things like disciplinary proceedings. And it kind of makes me think of the difference between privacy and secrecy. Hmm. And this is really something of secrecy. 
And one thing about secrecy is that it sometimes lets you lie. And sometimes a disciplinary provision thing could have happened, and the student then says, oh, that wasn't that. And the school has no ability to reply, no ability to say, oh, no, no, that's not true. Here's, here's, here's the truth, because they can't disclose that information. And the, the statute is written to give the students rights, right? And the students can protest any disclosure. They can protest any inaccuracy. They can go all the way to the Secretary of Education with that. So it's, it's a one-sided statute in the sense it's just protecting the student right. And what it does is it causes the educational institution to walk on eggs. They basically are terrified that if they give any information out, they're going to violate it. So it ends up getting uh, enforced even more strongly than it's written. Okay. So, so if you are um, a law school and you want to get the records of the undergraduates, you, you have to get the permission of right. the law student, and right? That's not, that's not a real issue. That yeah, that's not an issue. issue. So, so the real issues are if what? If someone goes to get a job and they say, I graduated, got my BS from the University of Wisconsin, and then they want to go and look it up? Is that what you're talking well, about? Well, no, in that case, the, you would get permission from the individual to get it. Right. But I'm talking about things like grades. Grades are regarded as sacrosanct. You can never disclose grades. And it seems to me that uh, by the time people get to college or law school, they're big enough and old enough, they ought to be able to handle having their grades put on a wall and then letting everybody see them. Because we encourage people to want to excel and want to do well. And the idea, oh, I'll be embarrassed if someone puts my grades up on a wall, to me is, is not an acceptable reason to keep that kind of thing private. Um, class rankings cannot be disclosed because that tells what somebody else's grade is. And I, I just think that's emphasizing exactly the wrong things. Hmm. I never really thought about it. I'm thinking, you know, that for your grades, for example, I mean, if you do it anonymously, is that a problem? I mean, you're not going to put up a name with it. I mean, I really... I'd put up the name myself. But yeah. I, I, want to say, I should tell you that I don't know anyone who agrees with me on this. Yeah. I, I just wonder what is the, the need for that. I mean, when I, I teach at UCI and when I give grades, I put it up on, um, you know, I, I upload it to the website and then they have the ability to access with their password oh, yeah. what no, their that, that, grades are. But, but that's fine. But they, you know, they don't know anybody else's grades yeah. unless well, they tell them themselves. I, I don't see why I need what would be the reason for having to do that, unless you're going to show like a bell-shaped curve where it's anonymous, that I don't think that that's a problem with that. Are you? Oh, and, and as long as it's anonymous, it's fine. It's identifying people that you can't do, and I don't see any reason why people can't be identified with their records. Well, I can understand if they have really a great record and they want to be valedictorian or they want to get honors. Then obviously, then they're going to be doing that, right? Oh, they can always disclose it, of course. Right. Now, now, there's another aspect of this. Okay, so what is, help me understand, I guess I don't understand, what is the need to know? I mean, if you're talking about freedom of speech, what is the need to know that that is deceptive by well, not revealing it? Help me. To help me, me. It, 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 it's a competitive matter. Oh. And people should be entitled to know how other people are competing. Um, well, I, I think they the could if you, if you list. That's, that's it, how I would put it. I don't see the need for secrecy in this. There's also an issue that the, the administration is now trying to put together statistics to try to identify ways to improve our schools. 
Right. But the states can't, won't give up any information that could possibly be tied to a given student. Right. And they, they, what the Department of Education wants to do is to be able to say, hey, this worked from these groups, this worked on these students. But they can't do that because they just can't get the information. And every time they turn around, Congress tightens the secrecy on the law. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a project which apparently is not going to get off the ground, Yeah, creating a, a, a database in this area. And you know what? I would have to say that I, I'm not comfortable with disclosing it, even though you know I graduated with honors from college and from law school, and I and I'm I'm very very careful with my students and don't reveal their grades. You know, I tell them how to get an A, but you know, I I don't ever reveal that. Even you know, I just don't see any reason that I would need to do it. I mean, competitively. I think even for competition to motivate, you could have a whole bunch of grades that are revealed without anybody's name. And then each person knows where they stand because I can say, oh, I got a 93, but the highest grade was a 98 and the lowest grade was a 62. I mean, I for competition-wise, I know where I stand. I don't have to know who it is. I do think it's a privacy issue more than a security issue. It's like, I, I think I have a reasonable expectation of privacy in not revealing how much money I have in the bank compared to my neighbors. Ah, that's something else. And yeah, but it's but a I competition. I, I, I mean, if, if my friends are making more money than I am or, you know, even with uh, lawyers, they can list what is the average that people make in their first year or their second year, what they should be making. I don't think they should list that. It's a competitive edge as well. So I think it's important to know what are the average um, you know, income for attorneys in, in, in certain industries so that you know whether you want to go into that. I think that's great, but I don't, I, and that's competitive, but I just don't think that there's any real good First Amendment right reason to know it. But, you know, maybe maybe I'm missing something. No, I'm not talking about the First Amendment. I'm not talking about the First Amendment at all. I'm simply talking about uh, the statutory rights here. I don't think it's any constitutional thing. Right. The, but, I mean, I don't law. understand what... But the point is, whenever Congress enacts a law, they enact privacy into it. It's not necessarily constitutional privacy. It's statutory. Right. Well, they, they don't do much for the issue of privacy with regard to many other types of things, which I wish they would. I mean, that, to me, it's kind of strange. They, they, they pick and choose. But... um. So tell me, let's talk now about the full body scanners. Those are scaring the heck out of me, you know, <laughs> at airports. I really, I mean, I, there's that balance between privacy and security. And what in the heck is going on? How, how, how in the world do they constitute, um, a, you know, that this is going to be something that is really going to protect people and it's more important to do that than, than to um, give us our privacy? Well, that's a good question, and, and a lot of people are uh, are asking it. Um, recently, I saw a story on Google, and I went to look this up, that a a scanner in England, um, a, a man, a female scanner, kind of walked into the range of the camera by accident, and he was able to full-body scan her. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she has raised hell, and he has been disciplined for it, and so on. Um, and I don't think anybody's really gotten to the core of what what issue there is, if there is one. Um, 
and it's really in a sense like anything else, isn't it? We're concerned about airplane security and how much do invade privacy to to assure that security. Um, how much is is your privacy involved? You've seen the photos just as I have. Yeah. Um, as long as you know, it's it's less of an intrusion than making somebody strip to the skin. I think. I, I think that's probably correct. <laughs> that yeah. I mean, I remember one time when I came back from Mexico with my husband. We had gotten married in 1970, and um, we came through Operation Intercept. You know, and we were young. We had gone to Wisconsin. We had actually been in Mexico traveling around for about six weeks. And we came through and they pulled me aside and they pulled him aside and they did all these searches on us, you know, looking for drugs. We didn't have any, but that's what they were looking for because we were just pulled out because we were young and had long hair and that's the way it was. Um, And I felt very invaded very invaded because I didn't think that they really even had a reasonable expectation. I mean, that they had any reasonable cause. There was nothing that I was bringing through. My eyes were probably fine. You know, I, I just didn't think that they had any, any kind of cause to, to pull me out, but they did. And it was pretty traumatic. So I'm sure that the, you know, that this full body scan isn't quite as bad. Well, every issue like this though, is the issue of, Security on the one side, right? privacy on the other. And you can argue privacy, which is a right and an invasion of it. When you get to the security side, you know, pretty much always the government's answer is, oh, well, we can't tell you why, right? We can't tell you why we need to do this. And that's not true of airplanes so much as it is in other, other contexts of, of, uh, of terrorism. And, and sort of every issue is, is that same argument, right? And the government is kind of almost all the time saying, well, no, we can't disclose that because it would give something away. And it's kind of hard to have an argument on those terms where one side simply is able to say, no, we need this for, we keep this secret for security reasons. Now, one thing you and I both know is that any government agency, really any business, is going to keep whatever secret it can. We all want to keep things secret if we don't have any reason to disclose them and they might embarrass us or give something away. So that's an instinctive reaction on that side, right? Against which you have to put what liberties are being questioned, you know, what rights are being invaded. I just really wonder about the need to scan everybody that goes through the airport. Um, I, I think about the Israelis and how they have dealt with terrorism for so many years, you know, since the 60s, you know, even before the 60s, and and how they ask certain questions that they ask everybody that goes through. And depending on how people answer those questions, that's when they have a secondary search or a third search or something like that. And I, I just really don't see without reasonable cause why one would need to invade my privacy at that extent unless there was reasonable cause. That's the only thought I have is, is that it just makes no sense to me unless I've done something or I've put myself in that position. Uh, just like you wouldn't want to be stopped by a cop every, you know, have every single person stopped, you know. But, of course, you're really describing profiling, aren't you? No, I'm not. I'm not talking about. Well, sure it is. Well, like in Israel, everybody there are everybody looks 
very similar in terms, not everybody, but a lot of the people look similar. So you can't like say, okay, well, this person looks like they're from, you know, somewhere that that might be like Yemen or something. They can't do that because people look alike. So the, they do psychological profiling rather than physical or okay. racial profiling. Well, but it's still profiling. It's still making judgments. Well, don't, on... don't, don't cops, when they stop you for speeding, don't they make some judgments? Don't they ask you some questions? Uh, and and that's psycholo- that may be psychological or physical profiling. I think they make a decision based on asking you some questions, and, and I personally don't see anything wrong with that. No, I don't agree either. And But I, I think no matter what it is, it's still basically profiling, making judgments based on um, external issues, external... Opinion. No, it's not external, it's internal. It's or psychological. It yeah. Matter. Well, there's a big difference between stopping people just because they're black or Hispanic when I you're agree. in a white neighborhood versus stopping someone who's driving erratically and then you ask them questions. So I think that, I don't know if I really am comfortable with the word. You think I'm using the term as a pejorative. I'm not using it as a pejorative. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm just saying that's what you're doing. That's all. Yeah, maybe psychological profiling is is what I'm calling it, and it's a way of asking questions and seeing how people answer. And instead of making them go through some of these outrageous things, you know, I just don't see a need to make – Everybody, I mean, I couldn't believe one time I, this poor little old lady, what they were making her go through. It was just ridiculous. And then there were other people that I would have really, you know, they looked nervous, they act nervous, they they looked the part, you know, <laughs> of someone terrorist. I, and I travel a lot and I just, I'm going to myself, what are they thinking? They're wasting their time. And that's kind of what I think this is. It's a waste of time and energy and money on these scanners that are going to reveal a lot more than they ever need to. It's like, why reveal more than you absolutely need to? Makes no sense to me. But I think that most people would just say, if it's got anything to do with air safety, let them do what they want to do. Yeah. I want to have a safe flight, right? Yeah. Well, but d- does does the ends really? You know, does the means really meet the ends? That That's the question, you know? That's the question. Well, you know what um, Vice President Cheney had was the 1% argument on terrorism. If there's a 1% chance it's going to happen, we're going to defend against it. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a matter. He wasn't going to weigh anything more serious, more, more Well, delicate. you know what? It's, it's To me, it's like this. When they gather too much information on people that... There's no reason to do it, like that total information, what was it, total information awareness, that that program that they had for a while. They have so much information that they can't even digest it, and that's how people get through that shouldn't get through. So uh, that's why I say that 1% rule for me doesn't make any sense because you're going to miss that 1%. But um, let's let's talk a little bit about... um, what aspects of privacy are threatened under the Constitution? That's We don't have a lot of time left. We have about two minutes. And maybe you could just give us a little bit of a quick answer about what aspects of privacy are threatened under the Constitution and what's, what's necessary. Well, 
the whole issue of terrorism brings up all of that, doesn't right, it? Right, yeah. It brings up the issue of, of tapping phones. It brings up the issue of, of tracking people. Um, all those issues, and, and that's exactly what I was describing a couple of minutes ago when I said, on the government side, they're always going to say, well, we need this in order to protect you. Right. And we can say, well, do you really? And they say, well, we can't tell you that, right? We can't tell you what we're talking about, who we're looking at, da da da. What is the particular threat? And I don't think you ever win that argument. What you can do is really to say, well, these are rights we're not going to give up. These are rights we don't think we have to give up. But uh, in terms of arguing against someone who's responsible for defending you, and who, who treats any, you know, any thing that doesn't completely go along with what they're proposing as as uh, raising a huge international danger, um, you know, that, that's just an argument that's going to go on, and we're going to have to find a balance for it. Um, this administration has not been rapid to undo some of the things that were complained about under the Bush administration in the security area. Right. The they Patriot Act moved. was just reauthorized. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, none of those things have they really, really pushed. And, of course, that's because they're concerned about being accused of being soft on these things. and Or maybe it's because they've looked at them and said, well, gee, maybe we really do need this, even though we criticized it before. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it's an argument that it's very hard to win, it seems to me, on, on uh, Obama's side. Right. So in the name of security, we really should give up all of our privacy. That's basically what, what I'm not what, you, what you're saying, but that's what many people are saying is that if, if there's a balance between security and privacy, security wins always. Well, I don't say it wins always, and I don't say it wins 100%, but I'm saying it's a difficult argument to win on the other side. Exactly. And uh, there are courts which, which will support it and will support the constitutional right. Once you get to court appeals, it usually doesn't work. You know, I want to go back to our very first discussion of the Constitution, if I may, for a minute. Okay. Because we talked about privacy on the person side, on the uh, on the rights side. Mm-hmm. But the Quan case was based on the Fourth Amendment. And the Fourth Amendment, of course, is against unreasonable searches and seizures. And the interesting part of the Quan case is that it's an affirmative use of the Fourth Amendment, not trying to keep evidence out of court, but asserting that a plaintiff can use the government's disclosure of information, right? Right. As as having invaded his his personal right, his uh, persons, persons, houses, papers, and effects is the language of the Fourth Amendment. Right. And uh, that that's the entire. I, to me, it's an entire other side of privacy from the personal issues we talked about before. Right. And that's really what the, what the Quan case to me has has brought forward. And I think created a lot of interest in. And I think we'll probably be seeing more cases that maybe they'll use that now because that was effective. That could be. Yep. Well, you've been wonderful. We so much appreciate your coming on, Professor Charles Dusko. You're terrific, and we will have you back again. And we thank you so much for joining us. Well, I've enjoyed it very much. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here. Also, please visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. There you can see our upcoming guests. You can see their pictures, their bios, go to their websites. You can also listen to archived interviews download podcasts and of course we would love to hear from you so right from there you can write us emails about what's important to you or what's scaring you 
about privacy in the information age. Thank you. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.